This sermon was preached on August 23rd, 2020 at Sure Foundation Lutheran Church located in Brandon, South Dakota on the basis of 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Christians who are saved by grace alone, that hymn is awesome, isn't it? Would you agree with me that the Bible has a lot of practical application for your life? I'm hoping that you would. <laughs> I'm hoping that that's probably the reason that you're, you're here today and that you come to church on a Sunday, one of the many reasons that you come, because the Bible does have practical applications for our life. And I pray that since you've been here in the short time that we've worshipped as Sure Foundation, that you've received some practical applications from the Word for your life and that you will receive many more in the, the months and years to come. That's why we go to come to church. But, but sometimes those things happen in the opposite order. We, we come to church to hear the Word, and then you hear a practical application about the Word, Right? You hear the word first and then the practical application, but it happens in the reverse order sometimes out in our everyday life. And what I mean is this, when you're out at work, when, when it's not Sunday morning and we're sitting right here, a lot of times you experience something or something happens to you or whatever, and you wonder, does God say something about this? You wonder, how does a Christian deal with this specific issue? And it's a good thing to, to be thinking about. And maybe you can even take it a step further and you could say, this thing has some seeming contradictions between what I know about the Bible and what I'm experiencing in my life. So, so how do I reconcile those two things? So this morning, I'm going to give you an example of that. In the Bible, there are 247 passages that have the word joy in it. 191 that have the word hope in it, and 265 that have the word peace in it. It makes sense. That's not really of a surprise to us, right? The Bible talks a lot about hope and joy and peace because these are blessings that come from God. So if the Bible talks a lot about hope and joy and peace, then how does the Christian deal with or talk about or think about Depression. It's a good question, isn't it? Because if the Bible talks about how hope and joy and peace are the result of, of knowing Jesus, then shouldn't everybody be happy? It, it would seem that way, but we know that that's not the truth. And so we need to talk a little bit about depression. It's something that's worth talking about, especially as a church body here. Because statistics say that one in eight women will suffer from depression and bouts of depression at some point in their life. Statistics also say that one in 16 men will suffer from depression at some point in their life, too. And so statistically speaking, some of you have dealt with depression or are dealing with depression right now. And statistically speaking, you definitely know someone who has, whether you're privy to that knowledge or not. So it's definitely worth talking about, but it's a tough question to answer. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. How does a Christian deal with depression? We're just going to scratch the surface this morning. I, I'm not a clinical psychologist, uh, but I, we're going to go to God's Word like we always do. 
We're going to read God's Word, and we're going to take an application from God's Word this morning. We're going to look specifically at the prophet Elijah, a great prophet in the Old Testament. We're going to 1 Kings chapter 19, and I have in the bulletin for you verses 9 to 18, but to give you a little background, and because I can, I added more verses. Um, So we're going to start at verse 1. This will give you some background, but we're really going to focus in on 9 to 18. You'll see it on the screen here. I'll just read it from the screen so we can follow along together. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah... He left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Lord God said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Kevin, you want to put it to the next one? Thank you. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Ebel-Mechulah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. This is God's word. Elijah, the great prophet. It's good to get a little background on what we're talking about here, because there's a big event that just happened right before this. So maybe some of you will remember this. Maybe I'll refresh your memory a little bit. Uh, Elijah was on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was, uh, was up in that, you see that red circle up there, up near the, the shore there. And he, w- he had a standoff on that mountain with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. These were false gods and false worship practices in the Old Testament, and many in Israel followed that. You noticed in the reading that Elijah felt pretty alone. A lot of people were following the Baals and the Asherah pole there. 
So, they're standing on this mountain. There's a showdown to decide whose God is the true God. And Elijah won a great victory. The Lord gave him a great victory, I should say, on that mountain. And he put those prophets of Baal and, and the prophets of Asherah to shame on that mountain. He ended up killing, putting to death the prophets of Baal and Asherah, those wicked men and women who served those false gods. This was a big victory for Elijah because for a long time, Elijah had felt like he was the only one in all of Israel that followed the Lord and that believed that he was God. But things change pretty quickly. You, you heard at the beginning of the reading that things change, and, and Jezebel saw what had happened to the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and she said, I want to make you like them. She gave that threat to Elijah, and Elijah was afraid, so he took off. He ran for his life, and he went all the way, just so you could visually see it, from Mount Carmel all the way down to Beersheba. So that's a long, that's a long way to travel on foot. So he gets down to Beersheba, and the whole broom bush incident happens, which we'll come back to in a second. But the Lord gives him food to eat, so he strengthens him enough so that he can run further away. <laughs> he runs further away after he gets his strength and all the way off the map. He runs all the way down to Horeb, which if you don't know what Horeb is, you probably know what Mount Sinai is. We remember Mount Sinai because that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai is where the Israelites camped before the, the mountain of the Lord. Horeb is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. And so Elijah runs all the way down to Mount Horeb. And so basically he, he's a long way from where he is supposed to be. <laughs> Elijah has despaired. Let's go back to Beersheba. Did you catch what he said there? He said, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. Now, this is more than Elijah just being a little dramatic. He has fully despaired about what is going on here. There is this great victory that happens on Mount Carmel, but after this great victory, still no one believes in Jesus or believes in God as the true God. Still no one follows the true God. They still follow the Baals and the Asherahs, and he feels more alone than ever. And on top of that, now he's got a price on his head. People are trying to kill him. He's being hunted. Things could not get worse for Elijah. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that Elijah is depressed here. There's a period where he can't seem to get out of bed. He's sleeping all the time. And it says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. These are some signs, right, of, of depression. He's depressed. Which is crazy to us, isn't it? This is the great prophet Elijah. This is the one who went to the widow of Zarephath's house and God continued to feed them during a period of, of drought. He saw those miraculous things. Then when the widow of Zarephath's son died, Elijah was the one that God used to raise her son from the dead back to life. He had seen what had happened on, on Mount Carmel and how God had given him the victory. Elijah would go on to be one of only two people in the history of the world to never face death. Him and Enoch never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. And he would be one that would stand with Jesus and with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a great prophet of the Old Testament that knew God's power firsthand, yet here he sat, depressed. Now there's still a lot to learn 
about depression. Uh, any of you who are, are medical professionals here, you know far more than I do about depression. And there's still a lot that we need to learn. The brain is a complicated thing, and, and trying to figure out what causes depression and how to, how to best serve people that have depression, that's some people's life work. But, but let's just get a little few, few insights into depression if you don't know much about it. D- depression isn't necessarily just, I have negative thoughts all the time that have caused me to be depressed. Sometimes depression is genetic, which means grandpa suffered with depression, mom had bouts of depression, and maybe you suffer with bouts of depression by no fault of your own, but genetically you're made up in a way that predisposes you to depression. Sometimes new mothers suffer from depression, postpartum depression. They don't ask for it, but it happens. Sometimes after a traumatic event, a sudden loss of somebody, Somebody can suffer from depression. Sometimes it can be whatever is traumatic to us. It could maybe seem not traumatic to other people, but traumatic to us, and and we suffer from depression on account of that. There's all different kinds of depression, and there's still a lot to learn, but I think as Christians, we have a responsibility in loving our neighbor to learn a little bit about it. Depression is a disease. That much has been established And so for Christians, it's important for us to think about how to deal with somebody that is having depression or if you you yourselves are depressed, to receive some comfort in knowing what God says about it. Because since it is a disease, that means some Christians giving to-dos and tasks unknowingly and unwittingly give advice that makes things worse. (laughs) They really want to help and we have good intentions, right? We want to help and care for people and take care of them the best that we can. We want them to to start thinking more positively again, but it's not something that can be fixed with writing down all the positives in your life or just thinking more positively. This is a complex issue, and sometimes Christians have done more harm than good. It'd be as if telling a person that has two broken legs to stand up and walk. It just doesn't work that way. To somebody that is depressed and is a Christian, imagine how those two things work together and how that might make it even more difficult at times for someone who's suffering from depression. We saw the stats. There are so many passages in the Bible about joy and about hope and about peace. And so if the Bible talks a lot about hope and joy and peace, then the person who's feeling depressed is wondering, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? that I'm not feeling hope and joy and peace. The Bible gives every reason for for people to be optimistic, right? Eternally optimistic. So why do I feel the way that I do? You can see why this is a, a difficult issue for Christians to deal with because not only are they feeling the weight of being pressed down, but by how they feel and by their circumstances, but they're feeling more weighed down by the shame and guilt that they're carrying, thinking, I should be happier. I I should have joy and hope and peace as well. Let's go back to God's word, to Elijah here. So Elijah, we're with him and we're at Mount Horeb. He's a long way from home. And God comes to him and he says something to him. Do you remember what he said? He said, what are you doing here, 
Elijah, basically saying, why are you so far from where you're supposed to be? Of course he knows, God knows, right, why he's down there. But he still asks him, why are you down here? And Elijah pours out his heart to God and he says, I've been so good to you, God. Look at all the things I've done for you. I have been so zealous for the Lord, meaning I have done what you have asked and I have gone over and above what you have asked. And now, I'm the only one in Israel that, that follows you, it seems like. And people are trying to kill me, too. Basically, I'm doing all the work that you told me to do, but I'm not seeing any visible results from what the work I'm doing here. And so God deals with them. God deals with them like he has dealt with psalmists before him. The psalms are filled with, with people that are depressed, people that are, are of giving a voice to their depression. If you read through the Psalms, it's not all bright and cheery. There's Psalms of joy and, and ex- exclaiming that joy, but there's Psalms of lament as well, where these psalmists are pouring out their, their heart to God. Uh, sometimes it seems like they're even complaining, and that's what Elijah seems to be doing here. But God deals with Elijah, and he tells him, go out, stand on the mountain, and I will be in your presence. You will be in my presence here. Okay, so Elijah goes out on the mountain, and he, he knows the presence of the Lord is coming for him. And so this great and mighty wind comes. It's so great that it splits the mountain in two, what that would have been like to witness. The rocks are shattered. Yet as powerful as that wind was, God was not in the wind. Then an equally mighty earthquake comes up. And Elijah perhaps expects God to be in the earthquake, but as powerful as that earthquake was, God was not in the earthquake. That's followed by a fire. All these three things happening in a row. And this fire was mighty and powerful as the two things before it, but God is not in the fire. But then he hears a a gentle whisper. And God is in the whisper, and you can tell because it says it. You can also tell because Elijah pulls his cloak over his head. No one can see God and live. A sinful human standing in the presence of God is, is forced to cover themselves because they can't stand the glory and presence of God. But God comes to him in a whisper, and what does he say? He says the same exact thing that he said before, but in a gentle whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? How might you have expected him to come? Elijah, get back to work. You're so far from home. Get back up there. Maybe with power and might. He's not scolding him, but he comes to him gently and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) You notice Elijah hasn't changed a whole lot since the first time he asked him that, right? Elijah says almost word for word what he said before, pouring out his heart to God. And that gentle whisper says to him, go back the way you came, go back to Damascus, the desert of Damascus, and continue your work there. Now, in in the Bible, we we take certain principles from things that God says in the Bible. And sometimes we take principles from stories, sometimes God deals with each person individually based on what they need. 
And so you might expect God to, to be really understanding and compassionate at this point. Elijah, just, just talk to me. Just tell me what you're, you're thinking right now and, and let's work this out. Let's hash it out. You know, you might expect that from a compassionate God, but, but God says exactly what Elijah needs at this point. Go back the way you came. Go back to Damascus. Elijah, go back. <laughs> get back to work. He's saying get back to work, essentially. He's doing it in a gentle voice as a compassionate God. But this is exactly what Elijah needed to hear at this point. This maybe isn't what every depressed person needs to hear, but it's what Elijah needed. Go back the way you came. God deals with Elijah in a gentle whisper. Now, he didn't leave him without other assurances. It maybe gets lost in some of the names that are up there like Haziel, king of Aram, like uh, Jehu and Elisha. Uh, He gives them assurances there. Did you catch what the assurances were? He says, one of the the things that was on Elijah's brain was, why are all these wicked people able to do whatever they want? And you don't seem to do anything about it, God. They just seem to be able to keep on doing those wicked things, and, and you don't seem to care. And I'm the one that has to run for my life. That was one of the things on Elijah's brain. And you notice what God said? He said, my judgment is coming for those who are wicked. He says, Haziel will take care of those who are wicked. And those that Haziel doesn't take care of, King Jehu will take care of. And those who Jehu doesn't take care of, Elisha, your replacement, will take care of. Justice will come. He wanted justice. And the other concern that was on Elijah's brain was, I'm so alone, right? And what does he say at the end? He says, you're not alone, Elijah. Aside from God being with him and him experiencing the very presence of God in a gentle whisper, he also says, there are 7,000 more, 7,000 more in in the nation of Israel that have not bowed their knee to the Baals or to Asherah. You are not alone. There are others out there who are faithful too. So now, Elijah, go back the way that you came. He deals with him in a gentle whisper, which perhaps is not what Elijah was expecting. Elijah had seen the great and mighty things of God. We talked about that. He maybe expected him to come in with his mighty hand and fix everything, but he comes in with a gentle whisper to deal with Elijah. You know, I think a lot of times we wish the same thing Elijah wishes. We wish that God would just come in and fix things for us, and we know that he has the power to do that. Because we've seen in Scripture that that has happened. That he has come in and in a mighty, supernatural way has fixed problems, right? But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he, he works through natural means to do things too. And so I'd love to tell you that if you're depressed, suffering with depression, if you know someone that's suffering with depression, that if they just came here and they listened for a little while, that all of their sadness and all of their depression would just melt away. But we know that, that God certainly has the power to do that, but, but he often doesn't work like that. That sometimes maybe it's a little bit more complex, right? That our, our brain is created so complex by God and so intricate, and it worked perfectly before the fall, but when the fall of sin happened, that, that, intricate, that intricate brain, that complex brain, suffered from the decay of sin and from the disease of depression. It doesn't make depression a sin. It makes it the result of sin. But God who created us with such complexity and intricacy knows you. (laughs) 
He knows each one of your brains and how they work even differently. He knows how to deal with each one of you individually, and he comes to you in grace. The same psalms that, that pour out their heart to God, the same psalms that seem to be in complaint, also say other things, like how God is our rock and our refuge, how God is our strength in whom we can trust, in whom we can hide, that he never changes, that the world may change completely, that the world may be utterly inconsistent, that we may go through high peaks in life and low valleys in life, and that we may suffer from depression, but your God will never change. And since your God will never change, his love will never change either. He directs his love towards you. Psalm 42 is a psalm of, if you read the rest of the verses, a psalm of depression, pouring out the heart to, the per, to, to God. But in Hebrew poetry, the center of the poem is the most important part. We, we Americans put the most important at the beginning or at the end. In Hebrew, they put it right in the middle. This is the exact middle verse of this psalm. And the psalmist who complains through the most, for most of the psalm says this in the middle. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God is gracious to us. He is our rock and our refuge and he will never change. His love is always directed towards you. That no matter what your emotions say in this life, whether you're in a valley or you're at a peak, your emotions may tell you one thing, but God will always tell you the same thing. I love you. I care about you. And I care about you so much that I sent my son so that this would not be the reality for you for long. That there will... Eternal bliss forever. <laughs> That's how much your God loves you. And he comes to you just like he came to Elijah. He doesn't whisper it in your ear, but he comes to you in a gentle whisper of his word. He comes to you and whispers his promises to you, gives you his grace, and in his word he gives you exactly what you need when you need it to strengthen you when you are weak, and to remind you that there is a day when we will no longer suffer from any sort of sadness or depression. The God who bolsters your faith until the end. How does a Christian deal with depression? <laughs> Great question. To which there, there is really no simple answer. But just like any other thing that we have, any other question that we have, any other answer that we want that we can't seem to find, any other fix that we wish we had but we, we don't, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and we trust that God is always good, that God is always merciful, and that he has shown his mercy to us in his Son. May God always to us and may, God all, may you always stay close to God's whisper. Amen.